0: Leadership support for More Perfect is provided by the Joyce Foundation.
1: Okay, hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. This is More Perfect. In the United States, we give the Supreme Court the power to find justice for people.
2: They come with boots. Boom, boom,
1: boom, boom. People who've been abused and manipulated.
2: Horrible. I mean, they didn't knock on their door.
1: That power extends beyond state borders. They come with prepotencia. Sometimes even beyond national borders. Swiss, Swiss,
2: here I come and show you who I am.
1: Question is, how far do we want it to go? Should our Supreme Court be the Supreme Court of the world? The Honorable the Chief Justice and the Associate Justices of the
3: Supreme Court of the United States. Oh yeah.
4: Having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention. LBJ, 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 LBJ. For the court is now sitting. God's
1: Okay, so I grew up at a time when a lot of people genuinely saw America differently than they do now. This was the 70s and 80s, Carter, Reagan years. And there was a sense, particularly if you were a new arrival, that America was special, exceptional, that we held the world to a higher standard. Certainly what brought my family to America. Okay, so it's not that way anymore so much, and it seems like every day, at least in my lifetime, we're asking the question, how should we feel about that, whatever that is, that higher calling that's somehow, for better or worse, embedded in the idea of being an American? Is that stupidly wrongheaded and arrogant, or is there something in that that we still should embrace? turns out that argument is happening, has been happening in a totally fascinating way at the Supreme Court, centered around this teeny, teeny law that seems to ask some pretty big questions about who we are, who we want to be. story comes from two KPs, hmm. Kelsey Padgett Hi. and uh, Kelly Prime.
5: KP2? KP1. I believe you are now KP1. KP1, okay. You've right. ascended the ranks. I am now KP2 or 3. No, you're
1: yeah. all KP1. <laughs> 7. Stop it. <laughs> KP12. Okay, stop. <laughs> Kelly, uh, start us off.
5: Yeah,
6: so uh, this story begins, appropriately enough, not in America, but it starts in 1976 with uh, this woman. I have to get used to. <laughs> yeah, is that a little
2: better? <laughs> Okay. So I guess the first thing, if you could just introduce yourself. Well, my name is Dolly Filartiga. I am from Paraguay.
6: Paraguay, it's a small country right on top of Argentina. In Dolly's family, the Filartigas
2: are a pretty
6: big deal over there.
2: What happened in my family was that my grandfather was very rich. The
6: Floridas made their money exporting tobacco to Europe for big cigarette companies like Gitans.
0: Gitan. It
2: was a family that owns a beautiful house in the countryside. Lots of land. Two airplanes.
6: Now this could have been Dolly's life. But it wasn't going to be like that. And it wasn't because of her father. Um, your father, what's his name, or what Huel, was Joel, And what, what did your dad do for a living? He's a doctor. Her dad very famously turned his back on his fancy upbringing and moved the entire family to the countryside.
2: They always were short of money.
6: And there he set up a clinic to give medical care to the poor indigenous farmers in that area.
2: He take care of, like, 47,000 people. He was the only doctor in a lot of cities. Her dad became kind of like a patron saint
6: of the countryside. Not only would he give them medical treatment, but when they came in, he would tell them, go vote, rise above your station. And as you can imagine, as word got out, this really pissed off Paraguay's ruler at the time, a guy named Alfredo Stroessner.
7: He was called the pulpo, the octopus, because he said he had arms and tentacles that reached into everybody's lives there in the country.
6: That's Rene Horst.
7: I'm a professor of Latin American history here at Appalachian State University.
6: When Dolly was growing up, Rene lived next door in Formosa,
7: Argentina. Right across the river from Paraguay.
6: And Rene says at that time, both Argentina and Paraguay were part of this, like, big network of dictators all across Latin America, and it was called Operation Condor.
7: Operation Condor was a network that linked together military dictatorships of Latin America, so Brazil, Argentina, Chile.
6: Bolivia, Uruguay, Paraguay.
7: And it was all masterminded by Pinochet in Chile.
6: Rene said that Operation Condor was a lot like a spider web, with Pinochet as the master weaver, the spider. The communist revolution in Cuba had just happened, and so these six super-militaristic dictatorships, they banded together to pretty much trap communism and keep it out of South America. Remember, this was the Cold War, and America really wanted to keep communism out of the continent, too. So it's really likely that the CIA was involved. The result was a network of state sponsored terror.
7: In the darkest part of the night, they would come to your apartment and drag you out and stuff you in the trunk of a Ford Falcon car, and you would disappear forever.
2: My father used to tell the Pesa, don't, don't vote for Strohner.
6: So, this was the context behind Dr. Falardiga's rebellion. Dolly said he'd travel all over the world giving
2: talks. Trying to show everything what Stroessner was doing in the country.
6: He would tell his patients when the government comes to buy your crops,
2: put it away, don't sell it.
6: Don't give him a thing.
2: (music) Dolly tried her best to ignore all this. We didn't get along with my father. I have to say that. (laughs) (laughs) So... When I get older... She moved away from the country. And I came to the city to live. What city was it? Asuncion. She worked to put herself through school. And then Juelito and Annalie followed me after. And
6: then Dolly says she worked to put her two siblings through school. Her sister Annalie at the time was 14 and her brother Jolito was 17.
2: Love Juelito. Love Juelito.
6: He was her favorite.
2: Jolito looked like my mother. Green eyes, castaño hair, light hair. I know that he had a lot
5: of girls that crushed on him.
6: This is Dolly's daughter, Paloma.
5: Very handsome, yes. But he wasn't a player or anything.
6: And what was what was Jolito's personality like? Was he loud? Was he quiet? He,
2: you see those people that say things and you laugh because he's so funny all the time? Those people that take joke. Comedian? Comedian. We always saw that he would become a comedian. He was very funny. So, so you two were close? Very close. So that's the backdrop.
6: 1976, Dolly's in the city with her two siblings, while her dad's out in the country, drumming up opposition to the regime.
2: At that time, Joelito, he tell many friends that he felt that he was being followed. He didn't want to tell us because we always tell him to be careful. Even my father, Joel, used to tell him, be careful because you are Joel, my son. And, he and at that time in Paraguay, it was well known that there were spies everywhere. The Purawe Purawe is an expression in Guarani.
7: A person with hairy feet, feet. with hair. Is called a Pirawe. It's a nickname for informers of the regime.
2: So
6: things were already tense. And then... On March 29th, 1976, Dolly and her siblings are turning in for the night.
2: Around 11, maybe. Dolly and Annalie both sleep in one bed. Angelito has his room. And so he went to brush his teeth and then, good night, good night. And what happened was that we heard in the middle of the night, maybe 3 o'clock was. The bumping in the door, but with the shoes. And she wakes up like, what's happening?
6: She throws on a coat over her nightgown.
2: To cover myself.
6: And she goes to the door, where she finds a cop.
2: He say, you have to come with me. There is a little problem with your brother at Peña's house. At Peña's house. Remember that name? Inspector
6: General Americo Peña. He lived two doors down, and she didn't know him too well, but he was a policeman, and she'd always had suspicions about him. So Dolly steps out into the chilly night in her nightgown. The street
2: was full of, of, of policemen, Car. The officer who was at the door walked her over
6: to Peña's house, into the house, down a long hallway that she says was lined with even more policemen.
2: There maybe was, I don't know, 70 of them. 35 and 35, one close to another. She says as she walked down the hall, the policemen sort of parted for her
6: and guided her to a room in the back of the house.
2: I went into that room, opened that door, and saw Sojolito's body.
6: He was lying on his back, on a mattress.
2: And this gorgeous human being. My brother was so beautiful.
6: His body is covered in gashes. You can see where he's been stabbed over and over again and maybe tied up.
2: They burned him, they cut him, I found the 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 teeth out this
6: there was an electrical wire attached to his genitals. The, uh,
2: monstruoso. Terrible. Terrible. You 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 don't know how to explain how how other human being can do can do that to another one who never did anything to you to, to, to I don't know.
6: Sally says she bolted out of the room and immediately ran into Inspector General Pena. He was standing in the doorway.
2: I saw Pena in my way. Pena told me, You better shut up. It is the thing that you deserve. And you better keep quiet because next time we will be you, something like that. He told you next time it would be you? Yeah. And your family. You better shut up. I say, I am Dolly Filartica. You don't know who I am. I am Dolly You made me shut up today, but tomorrow everybody will know what you did to my brother.
6: Over the next three years, the family tried to get justice. They sued Peña in the Paraguayan courts. But their lawyers were threatened. One was disbarred. When Dolly and her mom testified
2: against Peña... They sent us to jail. So we went to jail. When Dolly
6: and her mom got out of jail, they raised publicity. I'm showing what they did to my brother. They convinced reporters to write newspaper articles to call for an investigation. But before anything could happen, Peña, he disappeared. He vanished. He fled the country altogether. So the question is, if you're Dolly, what do you do? Your brother has just been brutally murdered. You know who did it, but you know you can't get justice in Paraguay because the whole court system's in with the regime and you can't go to the International Criminal Court because it doesn't exist yet. And even if it did exist, your case is way too small. So what do you do? Well, I said we have to do something. Fast forward to 1979. I moved to Washington. Dolly's living in D.C. Cleaning, cooking. Cleaning houses, working part-time at a law firm. Very
2: frustrated.
6: All this time, she's had feelers out with her dad's connections at NGOs, just trying to find out at least where Peña is living.
2: I always have communication with the Paraguayan living there. Finally, one day that spring, she got a phone call
6: from one of those connections.
2: They found Peña. They told me that Peña was living here in Brooklyn. He'd been working at a furniture store in
6: Brooklyn when a fellow Paraguayan had recognized him, outed him.
2: I didn't know what I was going to do, but I wanted justice. How do
6: you get justice in this case? I was desperate. You got a Paraguayan responsible for the death of another Paraguayan in Paraguay. Impossible to do anything. That would happen in Paraguay. So, like, even if he did something wrong, in Paraguay. which it seems like he did, there's not, like, this has nothing to do with America. Nothing.
2: Well, I said, we have to do something. So I
6: was looking for help Dolly contacts a lawyer who gets her in touch with this guy.
2: Peter.
8: Peter Weiss.
2: Weiss.
8: Center for Constitutional Rights.
2: Center for Constitutional Rights. Peter says even before Dolly showed up,
8: we were trying to figure out how to sue people committing crimes against humanity and war crimes.
0: For example, 504 unarmed Vietnamese women, children, and old men were massacred over a four hour period by U.S. troops. This was around the time of
6: the My Lai Massacre in central Vietnam.
8: When that happened, my colleagues at the center and I...
6: They'd been wondering, was there a way for them to bring a case against the U.S. military on behalf
2: of one of the victims?
8: In an American court, if the crime was committed abroad.
2: So I came and met Peter and asked for help.
8: So I called an emergency meeting of the center staff.
2: And he asked them, like... Is
6: there a way we can help? Is there some, like, wormhole in American law that would let us bring non-Americans and non-American crimes into American courts?
8: And one of us at the center was obviously a good researcher.
6: And they said, hey, you know, there's this super-old, super-obscure law.
8: Something called the Alien Tort Statute. The, the what?
6: The Alien Tort Statute.
8: And it seemed uh, just right for that case.
2: I don't know how many hours and hours and hours and hours they tried. Finally, they found this law that they used to use against the piratas. The pirata. Pirates. Pirates. Thank you.
1: Pirates. Yeah. What do do pirates have to do with anything?
5: Oh, who yeah what
1: You want to go straight to me or do you uh, want to go you,
5: Kelly I'm, to hand off?
1: I want t- to someone to answer my question.
5: Sure. Um, who who are you by the way? I'm Kelsey Page, a reporter. Okay. And yes, this story has to do with pirates, definitely. We'll get there. But before that, there's this even crazier background. Okay. You got to you got to buy it. You got to go with me on this journey because you know, it's 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 it, it's, it's a lot different
9: <laughs> than the rest of this story. So
5: ready to go on this journey? Yeah. Take my hand. <laughs> We're going to Philadelphia. we from P-H-I-L-A period. All the way back in 1784. Granola and a banana. This is William Casto. He's a law professor at Texas Tech. He told me this story, and it's really a story of like a fight of a beef. Yeah. Here's the situation. It's 1784. You've got this guy. Mr. DeLongchamps. Charles Julian DeLongchamps. And he's a French guy, and he's living in Philly. Philly,
10: Philly! Uh, He apparently was an officer in a French cavalry regiment and a nobleman by birth. By the way, some people didn't like him. Thomas Jefferson said he's an, quote, obscure and worthless character, okay? Why? Why do you say
5: that? Uh... Doesn't matter. What's important is that he is here in America, has a bad reputation, and he ends up meeting this girl.
10: A nice young Quaker girl, a, quote, heiress to a competent fortune. Ooh. Yeah.
5: And her friends?
10: Disapproved, very much so. And so they started circulating rumors around town, around Philadelphia, that Longchamp was a liar. That he was not of noble birth and wasn't even an officer.
5: That he was just probably gold digging, you know, since she had this money. Yeah, I see. De DeLongchops is really mad about this. He was
10: incensed and he put on his uniform and he stormed over to the French embassy. He goes to the embassy. And there he spoke with Francois Barbe Marbois.
5: Another French guy.
10: Who was the embassy's first secretary, okay? Here's an aside. Marbois later was Napoleon's minister of finance. Oh. And he negotiated the Louisiana
5: Purchase. Wow. But that's just an aside. Point is, Marbois is like... An important dude. But, you know, the other French guy, De Longchamps, the maybe scoundrel guy, he walks in and he's like, I guess he doesn't show a lot of respect. He's like, you know, I need you to drop everything and help me out with this situation because people are spreading rumors about me. They're saying I'm not a nobleman or whatever. I need you to stand up for me.
10: And Marbois refused.
5: Mm-hmm. We don't know why.
10: At any rate, in response, Longchamps shouted at Marbois, I'll translate it, I will dishonor you. And then he called him, and this is a translation, a laughable scamp. (laughs) Which is kind of, can you imagine people calling someone a
5: laughable scamp today? (laughs) It seems tame, honestly. Very tame. But those words would create a national crisis. In fact, everything we're talking about today goes back to this little confrontation How?
10: What do you mean? So, like,
5: honor was this big deal back in the day. Like, it's why Hamilton dies, right? Something like calling someone a laughable scamp could cause a death. You know what I mean? Like, that's the kind of thing you do a duel over. It was an indignity. Marbois was so pissed at the moment. And he did the right thing in that time period, which is instead of have a duel with the man, Mm -hmm. (laughs) he contacted his bosses. He wrote a letter, you know, across the seas to France and and said, y'all, what are we going to do about this? Now, the French... Don't like what's going on.
10: The French want us to put him on a ship back to France and have France punish De Longchamps. And the uh, Pennsylvania Executive Council agreed, but the judges refused. They say, we're not going to do that. That's ridiculous.
5: All that causes France to say, you know what? If we can't be sure that America is going to take care of this, that they're going to punish this guy... Maybe we can't take this brand new country seriously. Maybe it's a land of no law.
1: Oh, so it really escalates.
5: Yeah, it becomes this huge thing. And you got to keep in mind, at that time, the United States was a third world nation. We were weak. France had been our buddy during the revolution. And the feeling was, we desperately needed the help of other countries because we were just this baby little country.
10: By the way, the Dutch ambassador was furious too because he said, If you don't punish long I'm leaving the state. He actually threatened to leave the state. It it really created problems. So
5: we had to do something. But the question was, what?
10: The national government had no authority whatsoever to deal with or punish a person like long because it wasn't a crime to just say, I will dishonor you.
5: And even if it were, the insult happened at what was essentially the
10: French embassy. Some have argued that that made this a situation outside of the United States. Oh,
5: so I step in there and I'm uh, suddenly under the rules of France. Yeah, yeah, that's the argument. You know, did we have jurisdiction over that space? Did we not? Point is that the new U.S. government— They were just powerless. They didn't know what to do. What happened? Well, so the case goes to court. And the judge in that case he's trying to figure out what to do he's in a really bad political situation he's got to punish this guy and he's looking at his books no law he's got no laws to charge this guy under and then it occurs to him you know there there are some other laws that aren't explicitly written down but that all people across the world agree are bad things all nations agree that this is bad and can be punished and the classic example of that is pirates Now, pirates are out there on the open seas, sort of pillaging, plundering, killing, and they are not really subject to any one nation's laws. They're not doing this in a nation. No one had specific jurisdiction over them. And going all the way back to Roman times, pirates were designated as universal enemies.
11: The hostess humani generis.
5: That's Samuel Moyne, history professor at Yale University.
11: The phrase in Latin is hostess humani generis, which means the enemy of, of the humankind or race. And it means that maybe there's things that are so heinous, um, you don't have to pass a law to make them illegal. And you don't have to be empowered to to stop or punish the perpetrator of such crimes because they're just so bad. And piracy was the classic example.
5: Okay, so what the judge decides is that this French guy in Philadelphia who insults the fancy French guy in Philadelphia, the way that we're going to solve this is by saying that the insulter, he's a little bit like a pirate. Now, he doesn't use the term pirates, but it's the same concept. He said that that guy, long jump, has broken international norms. He is guilty of an atrocious violation of the law of nations. He not only affronts the sovereign he represents, but also hurts the common safety and well being of nations. He is guilty of a crime against the whole world. And that's a quote from the ruling.
10: They then fine him a hundred French crowns and two years in jail. Two years. Two years. For that's saying... a lot
5: is <laughs> for business. Basically... I will dishonor you. Wow. Okay. This move by the judge, it basically works. Um, Marbois and France feel good. Their honor's been protected. The Dutch ambassador doesn't leave. He stays. But more importantly for our story, in 1789, Congress passes some of their very first laws. There's like this one big bill about courts. And in there is this thing called the Alien Tort Statute. The Alien Tort Statute... You know, it was written into law to deal with this kind of situation where a diplomat is insulted or attacked or something like that. But more generally, it was meant to connect U.S. law to international law. The law basically says, and I'm simplifying this a bunch, but it basically says, like, if somebody violates international norms, you know, like a crime against the whole world, they can be sued in U.S. civil courts.
1: Wait, you're saying there was a law... From the beginning that allows non US people to sue each other for non US crimes in US courts? Yeah. It's so weird.
6: But but like the thing is, this is this is Kelly again. Hello, Kelly. When it comes to this law, like forever no one actually used it. It really? was barely mentioned for two hundred years.
1: Why? Why why didn't it come up?
6: If you think about it though, it kinda makes sense it wasn't used because mm. It was a super specific law. Like, this was a weird circumstance in which we really needed to bring international law and use it inside our borders. But that kind of thing, like diplomatic fights, like that didn't happen very often. Yeah. And more generally, the prevailing idea at the time was that internationally, we should kind of stay in our lane. Like, if you're going to come into our country and mess with our citizens, like, yeah, we're going to do something about that. But if you want to do something to your own citizens... That's not my business.
3: There's an old idea that in every country, the government can do to its people whatever it wants, and and nobody in any foreign country, no foreign government, has any business telling them what to do.
6: This is Eric Posner.
3: Professor of law at the University of Chicago.
6: And he says the reason that the alien tort statute was pretty much ignored is because of this idea.
3: This idea of sovereignty.
6: That... We're not going to tell you what to do in your borders, so don't you come into our country and tell us
3: what to do. Most people don't know this, but there was actually a humanitarian basis for this harsh-sounding principle.
6: Came about in the 17th century, he says.
3: The problem back in the 17th century were uh, religious wars.
6: Protestants invade the Catholics, Catholics invade the Protestants.
3: You know, endless strife. And so the idea was, um, let's simplify things. And just understand that in foreign countries, people have different values and ideas. And it's just not practical or good in the long run if if we try to tell people in foreign countries how they should behave. And this was the dominant view for hundreds of years.
6: Until World War II, really.
3: But... The Holocaust changed everything. No words can express the world's disgust at Germany's organized carnage. One of the defenses that Nazis uh, gave to the specific charge of massacring Jews is that they were protected by the principle of sovereignty. That was, uh, you know, considered an unacceptable argument, and countries around the world basically agreed that limits had to be put on sovereignty, and those limits would be known as human rights.
6: And just a few years later, in 1948...
3: You get the Universal Declaration of, of Human Rights.
10: It is the first occasion on which the organized community of nations has made a Declaration of Human Rights.
6: And suddenly, all eyes turn to human rights.
11: Look, it's a golden moment.
6: Professor Samuel again. he says if you fast forward to the 70s...
11: Americans, having fought Vietnam, having sullied themselves in doing so, want to bring human rights to the world now and the human rights movement was very exciting. You know, there were rock concerts and...
12: Ladies and
13: gentlemen, a lot of famous people.
12: You know, it's...
11: Joan Baez and a lot of, you know, rock stars and pop culture icons get involved.
2: Amnesty International.
11: Amnesty wins the Peace Prize. Nobel Peace
2: Prize for 1977.
11: Um, as long as i am president jimmy carter's inviting the government of the united states dissidents from eastern europe to visit the white house continue
4: throughout the world to enhance human rights
11: it's it's a it's a new cause that's very exciting to a lot of people and, and rightly so it would be great if america could make the world a better place
6: So, this brings us back to Dolly. So, I came and met Peter. And Peter Weiss. Center
8: for Constitutional Rights.
6: Trying to figure out how to bring Dolly's case to U.S. courts. That's the context. America is having this moment with human rights, and we want to bring it to the rest of the world. So when someone in Peter's office suggests using this old little law to get justice for Dolly, it seems obvious, like, of course.
8: So I called an emergency meeting of the center staff.
6: Basically, their idea was that some crimes, like piracy, were so bad that the borders didn't matter. Like, anyone should be able to prosecute them, and the U.S. should be able to bring these people to court on behalf of the world.
8: But I I have to tell you that the majority of... (laughs) Our colleagues thought we were slightly insane. Did your boss say, like, what? Yeah, people said, "Uh, you're never going to get anywhere with this. It's all about Paraguay.
6: So Dolly's lawyers, they file their papers, and eventually this case gets in front of a federal circuit court.
8: The, The federal court, Eastern District, Brooklyn.
2: In the day of the trial, you saw Peña in the elevator at court? Yes. I met him in the elevator, and I asked him, why you did you do that to my brother? Why did you do that to him? Why? He couldn't answer. He was shaking. Anyway, we were in the court. He's a Paraguayan, I too, and so what?
6: In the court, they submitted autopsy reports.
2: We bring the photographer. F- f- photographer Pictures. We, we bring picture of him with the mattress. Jolito was in the mattress, tying the feet and the hands like this. And Peter
6: says that after he made his argument, an interesting thing happened.
8: When I finished my argument, the judge started to go back to his chambers. And before he got out of the courtroom, he turned around and said, Interesting case.
1: Mm. Ooh, so what happened? Well,
6: the judge ruled against them. Ah. But they appeal.
8: Then it goes up to the Second Circuit.
6: And ultimately, a judge orders Peña to pay $10 million to Dolly and her family. They won? Yeah.
2: What happened was like a miracle. I was able to get justice in the United States.
11: In the Philartica case, they convinced the Second Circuit that the alien tort statute...
6: It wasn't just for stuffy diplomats anymore.
11: It was for human rights. Period. They say, look, um, torture is now like piracy.
6: And this ruling sets off... And
11: then we're off to the races.
6: An explosion of cases. I mean, in 1984, you had Telleren v. Libyan Arab Republic, and
2: 85,
6: the Soviet Union. Then Dardel v. USSR. 1987, there was a case from Argentina called Forti v. Suarez Mason. It's wonderful. 1991, Guatemala. 1993, Ecuador and Peru. Were- 1995, former Yugoslavia. In 1999, Chile. Uh, there was a case. Basically what you saw in the 80s and 90s and into the early 2000s is that cases from all over the world started just like flooding into American courts.
11: The reason this statute is so important is that it's American law. It gives American lawyers who want to use their legal training something to do as part of this cause. Lawyers can save the world while practicing law.
0: I think looking at the role of the ATS, um, it's hard to underestimate just how much impact it's had. This is Catherine Gallagher, also from the Center
6: for Constitutional Rights.
13: The Alien Tort Statute over the last 35 years has become the source of almost all significant human rights litigation in the United States and indeed in the world.
6: And that's John Bellinger.
13: Legal advisor for the Department of State from 2005 to 2009.
0: Before Florida, there was very little that victims of human rights violations could do. There were a lot
6: of folks, especially in the American legal system, who felt like America had never been a greater force for good in the world. But the rest of the world... Wasn't so sure.
1: That's coming up. More Perfect will continue in a moment.
9: More Perfect is supported by NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash moreperfect. netsuite.com slash perfect
4: I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: This is More Perfect. I'm Jad Abumrad. Back to the two KP's, Kelsey Padgett and Kelly Prime. Here's Kelly.
6: Where we left it, Philadelphia just happened. We had an explosion of cases. American human rights lawyers were feeling really good about themselves, but diplomacy is a delicate thing.
13: Many foreign governments, uh, including many Western democracies... That's John
6: Bellinger again.
13: ...Great Britain, Australia, Germany, Switzerland, would regularly complain to me as the legal advisor of the State Department that they thought that the alien tort statute was in fact itself... A violation of international law uh, because it allowed US judges to have jurisdiction over actions that had absolutely nothing to do with the United States
6: but instead of dialing it back human rights lawyers they decided why not push it even further so around 1995 They made a big leap, they decided that instead of just going after individuals, like foreign government officials, they were going to use this law to go after foreign corporations.
0: When the first alien tort statute cases were filed against corporations, these cases were really seen as um, as slightly crazy. How can you do this? These are corporations, these are not governments, these are not dictators. How can you sue them under this law? But what human rights lawyers said was,
6: if Dolly's case showed us that this law is about modern-day pirates, what better example of pirates do we have nowadays than multinational corporations? If you want to go all the way, you could say they are these big, Massive entities that just can reach out their tentacles into any country. They float between jurisdictions, move from one to the next to the next, and commit brutal crimes. Like, sometimes they empower dictators to commit those crimes. And when you try and pin them down, like when you want to hold them accountable, they can just
5: vanish. So, yeah, uh, all of that sounds, you know, really abstract. For me, it didn't really register, like, why you would go after a corporation. Until I heard this story, the story of Ken Sarawiwa.
12: I mean, I grew up in a political household in that my father was a a national figure because he was a writer and a commentator in newspapers.
5: Just like Dolly, Ken had this famously outspoken dad.
12: Very much a social critic.
5: He was a famous thorn in the side of the regime. The regime, in this case, is this military dictatorship in Nigeria.
8: New Year's Eve, the military deposed the civilian democratically elected President Shagari.
5: In the 80s and 90s, Nigeria went through a series of military coups. And Kin's dad, who actually wrote a sitcom that was like very famous, millions of people around the country watched it, he would make jokes about the regimes. He would write articles about them.
12: And you know, the subject of his, both his columns and his his television program were the inequalities of Nigeria's political system.
5: The situation at the time in Nigeria was that you had tons of oil under the ground.
12: An estimated $30 billion worth of oil.
5: And in order for the military regime to get that out, they partnered with a division of Shell.
12: Shell companies in Nigeria are supplying domestic gas and generating electricity.
5: Problem was, the people who lived on the land where the oil was, they're really poor. And they weren't given barely any of this money.
12: And against that, to add insult to injury, unchecked oil production was creating an environmental disaster in our community. What we are working on now is crude oil. This land is lost for the next thousand years.
5: This is a clip of Kin's father showing a reporter ruined farmlands. An oil pipe burst here
10: in 1970. Oil still seeps to the surface. Nothing is going to grow here. Yeah,
12: you know, it's, 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 it's a land that's been devastated by oil production. In some places, surface water contains 900 times the accepted level of benzene, which causes cancer.
5: So Ken's dad, you know, he was writing articles about this. He was speaking out about it. But eventually he decided that wasn't enough.
12: And, uh, and he decided, I think, in the late 80s that he was going to take oh to the streets. God, yeah! Indigenous people have been cheated through laws. In
5: 1993, he organized Ogani Day, where 300,000 people came out to protest.
12: We are going to demand our rights peacefully, non violently, and we shall win.
5: Over the next month, the protests kept going. They escalated. As tension increased, an oil worker was badly beaten. And then Shell pulled out of the region. Resulting in the closure of oil operations in the area. And they took millions
12: of dollars with them. And and the government depended almost solely on the revenues from that one economic activity.
5: And so, not long after the protests, Kin's dad was thrown into jail. And... Ken Jr., he, he begins frantically traveling the world, trying to raise awareness about his dad's
12: situation. To publicly put pressure on, on General Abacha, the Nigeria's head of state.
5: And on November 10th, 1995, two years after his dad had been arrested, Ken is at this international conference in New Zealand, trying to sort of lobby world leaders. And he says that after dinner, he just got this funny feeling.
12: I remember walking, walking across one of the streets, and I just saw the sunset that evening, it was a beautiful sunset actually, there's there a big red sun just sinking into the bay. And um, I felt something go in my chest. And I think I knew. I knew then that something had happened.
3: Ken Sarawiwa, writer, human rights activist, campaigner on behalf of his fellow tribesmen, hanged this morning in a Nigerian prison. Ken says that world
5: leaders spoke out, the Prime Minister of England, even Nelson Mandela.
12: Unfortunately, it was to no avail.
5: Nothing happened.
12: But it's difficult to know what to do with all of that. How do you how do you get justice for what what, what happened to your father?
5: You you could argue and this is what lawyers later did argue, that the only way to get justice was was not to go after the regime, but to go after Shell and its parent company, Royal Dutch Petroleum. In going after Shell, they claim that they helped the Nigerian government do some horrendous things. They claim that Shell aided and abetted the Nigerian government and kidnapping and torture and rape. Shell
1: directly did this stuff? or, or Well,
5: aided and embedded. So the claim is that they would supply guns. They'd they would... actually supply guns. Well, actually, the, the allegation, the claim is that uh, it's uh, just ammo.
1: But still, that's in, that's not a... Right. And
5: there were other things, too. Like they claimed that Shell would call in uh, this sort of special forces unit of the Nigerian government that, that colloquially everybody was calling the kill and go mob.
1: Oh, they're claiming Shell was calling in hits?
5: Yeah, basically. That Shell was like, you know, hand in hand with the government on this. Of course, Shell denies all this. And in 2002 people like Ken who had lost brothers, lost family, you know, and also surviving victims of all this violence, they they banded together with some American lawyers and brought a case under the alien tort statute. They alleged that shell
11: was essentially the hostess humani generis, the enemy of of the human kind or race,
5: and therefore could be tried in American courts.
6: Yeah. And as you can imagine, they got pushed back, and this case got challenged all the way up to the Supreme Court.
4: We'll hear argument first this morning in case ten fourteen ninety-one, Diobel versus Royal Dutch Petroleum.
6: Okay, this case was actually argued twice, but we're combining them here for simplicity. So the basic issue in this case seemed really simple at first. Can you use this law against corporations? Like if you read the Falartica decision,
0: the torturer has become like the pirate and slave trader before him an enemy of all mankind.
6: This is Justice Kagan actually reading from the Filardaga decision and saying, you know, we- We
0: gave the stamp of approval. The
6: courts have said this is okay. there
0: were certain categories of offenders who were today's pirates.
6: So the question was, are corporations in that category? Can they be considered today's pirates?
14: The principal issue before this court is whether a corporation can ever be held liable For violating fundamental human rights norms under the alien tort statute. That's
6: Paul Hoffman, the lawyer representing the Nigerians bringing the case.
14: And and let me start by saying that the, the international human rights norms that are at the basis of this case.
6: Like all the terrible crimes we've all already agreed are crimes against humanity.
14: All of those human rights norms are defined by actions. They're not defined by whether the perpetrator is a human being or a corporation.
6: And if Philartagas says that torturers are today's pirates, what about a group of torturers? What about Pirates Incorporated?
4: Do you think in the 18th century, if they brought Pirates Incorporated and we get all their gold and the Blackbeard gets up and
10: he says, oh, it isn't me, it's the corporation, uh, do do you think that uh, they would have then said, oh, it's icy; it's the corporation, goodbye, go home?
6: Uh, That's Justice Breyer basically agreeing that, in this case, to differentiate between, like, a corporation doing bad things and a person doing bad things, it's, it's kind of silly.
11: This case clearly struck Justice Breyer powerfully. The question to me is who are today's pirates? He says Adolf Hitler was like a pirate. If Hitler isn't a pirate, who is? They're the dread pirates of our time. And we have treaties that say there is universal jurisdiction.
14: The Alien Tort Statute as, as it was applied to human rights cases from Philadelphia on is part of a trend in, in the world today. The trend in the world today is towards universal justice for people that, and, and, and corporations that violate these kinds of norms. That's the trend. In fact, the United States has been the leader in that. Our government has proclaimed our leadership position. We thought the argument went extremely well, and we really did not see how we should lose.
6: But then... It was Shell's turn.
14: The trouble is that the choice to pursue
11: corporations
6: Samuel Moyne again,
11: might have killed the goose that laid the golden eggs. Because on the one hand, it makes sense to shift to corporations. They have the money. On the other hand, corporations will use their money to hire the best lawyers they can buy. Lawyers like? Miss Sullivan.
6: Kathleen Sullivan.
0: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court,
6: When Kathleen Sullivan got up there, she and the defense team basically sidestepped the whole issue of whether corporations should or should not be considered pirates, whether this law should or should not be applied to corporations. They actually went bigger. They started talking about all the reasons why actually using the ATS for non-American crimes might be a really bad idea for anyone. It came down to three main points. One... Reciprocity.
0: We fear that if we say that a United States court can be open to try any accused law of nations violator for anywhere in the world, regardless of the place of the conduct, the other nations of the world might seem to do the same to us.
6: Basically, if we can take people from
0: other countries and try them in our courts... What's stopping them from doing that to us? That should inform your decision today. And the second point made by Shell... That's where the offense to the principle against international friction is at its highest. International friction. Like, this could cause a
6: diplomatic nightmare. You're basically saying other countries, these judges that you didn't elect, we didn't elect them either, frankly. I didn't vote for them. You didn't vote for them. They were appointed. And now they're going to be patrolling international law? Are we really
0: comfortable with that? And I want to stress that our point is that the U.S. is projecting here our law onto foreign countries. It's and finally,
12: and the statement of the case is really striking. This case
6: on the most basic level,
12: what does a case like that, what business does a case like that have in the courts of the United States?
6: How is this any of our
12: business? So, There's no connection ...to the United States whatsoever.
6: It's a point that really jived with Justice Alito.
12: Why does this case belong in the courts of the United States? Well, well the, It has nothing to
10: do with the United States other than the
6: fact... in a way, a subsidiary. in that moment, he sort of captured how America had shifted. We didn't want to pretend to be that shining city on the hill anymore. That was over.
4: I have the opinion for the court in case number 10-1491... Kiobo and others versus Royal Dutch Petroleum Company and
11: others.
6: In the end, the court decided to rule in favor of Shell and Royal Dutch Petroleum. And
11: the chief justice wrote the decision.
4: Justice Story wrote in 1822 that no nation has ever yet pretended to be the custos morum of the whole world, the guardian of morals of the whole world. First, it's just a matter of common sense that when Congress passes a law, it is passing a law that applies in the United States and not some other country, unless the law tells us otherwise. Second, regulating conduct abroad risks serious foreign policy consequences, and courts are and should be reluctant to invite such consequences unless that is what
11: Congress clearly intended.
4: And we see no reason to he says the
11: that extraterritorial conduct conduct that's outside the United States isn't going to count it ha- there has to be some relationship to the united states
6: basically, they took the a t s and they clipped its wings.
11: do you feel like the
1: I'll, I'll tell you the read the, the thought brewing in my mind, and I'm wondering if you would agree or you think it's stupid mm-hmm. um the The sense that I have with the a t s is that It came about at a moment of great idealism and hope. Mm -hmm. And now, after the fog is cleared, so to speak, it seems to represent not just hope, but naivete. Mm -hmm. The fact that we think we can change the world, that it's that easy. The ATS and its falling out of favor somehow represents in a way the way in which we've all Mm -hmm. had a kind of sober awakening. I wonder, Mm -hmm. do you feel like human rights...
11: In the way we understood it, is dead. No, it's. I think it's transformed our our idealism. But maybe the the disaster in Kyobel was a moment of kind of stepping back to think a bit more broadly about how we can make the world a better place.
6: And Samuel Moyne says we do need to rethink some things. Maybe Frankly, it's a little dishonest to just pretend
11: that. America brings justice to the world. America was founded on the idea of human rights. I was
4: the first nation in the history of the world to be founded explicitly on such an idea.
11: Which is is not really true. And and as they've presented their cases, the human rights movement leaves out how much the United States has often been involved in the evil they're portraying in court.
6: So at the very least, he says that what this decision shows us is that Before we run around judging other countries, we should take a hard look at ourselves. Absolutely. But more importantly...
11: In the end, we can't avoid the question, what's the best bang for our buck? It's just not proven yet that ATS is it.
6: He said all you really had was a few individuals who won cases, and by the way, most of them never got any money. Really? Yeah. Dolly didn't get paid. You know, after she won, Pena fled. Again.
11: And so, in a way... The Alien Tort Statue didn't have far to fall to begin with.
1: Oh, so they're just symbolic victories.
6: You could definitely see it that way. Do you feel like you got justice? Did, what did you get yes, after this?
2: Yes, yes.
6: But Dali Flordiga doesn't. You you didn't get any money back, correct? Yeah,
2: but it never was for 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 the money. Listen, the money won't pay. Don't bring me back, elito. I find. Tajo uh, no, no murió de Valde. I know how to say that in English sometimes, but there that, that was a reason. Yes, yes, I lost a brother. But when we won the case here in New York, in United States, I get so many other brothers and sisters through all over the world that I find... Da Juelito didn't diet. yet. Eh, Juelito lives forever.
1: Kelsey Padgett and Kelly Prime so the debate about the ATS and America's role in the world continues the court just heard arguments in another ATS case this term it's called Jesner v. Arab Bank it's a suit brought by nearly 6,000 plaintiffs against a Jordan based bank accused of financing terrorism odds are that the court will use the case to further limit the ATS but that remains to be seen Okay, More Perfect is produced by me, Jad Abumrad, with Susie Lechtenberg, Julia Longoria, Kelly Prime, Sean Ramosfirm, Alex Overington, and Sarah Kari. This episode was produced with Kelsey Paget, and significant editing juju from Jenny Lawton. Take it, Jenny.
6: We also had help from Ellie Mistal, Christian Farias, Linda Hirschman, David Gable, and Michelle Harris. Supreme Court audio is from Oye,
2: a free law project in collaboration with the Legal Information Institute at Cornell.
0: Leadership support for More Perfect is provided by the Joyce Foundation. Additional funding is provided by the Charles Evans Hughes Memorial Foundation. Additional music for this episode
6: was by Nicholas Carter. And on a sad note, Ken Sarawiwa Jr., who appears in this episode, passed away in October 2016.